Thanks for downloading Development Drums. I'm Owen Barder and this is episode 11, coming from London, where I've been at the Poverty Summit held on 8th and 9th of March. Later in the programme I'll be talking to Simon Maxwell, who's the outgoing director of the Overseas Development Institute, ODI, here in London, and to Nancy Birdsell, the president of the Centre for Global Development, CGD, in Washington, D.C., Before that, I'll be talking to Manoush Shafiq, who is the Permanent Secretary at the UK Department for International Development, about the forthcoming British policy white paper about international development. And I'll also be asking some of the people here at the conference what they think. Okay, my name is Richard Jolly. Uh, As regards development amidst crisis, I think the first thing is that ways to get out of the crisis must involve being linked with uh, development and this conference over the last two days has produced many ideas for that. One from the World Bank was there needs to be a shift of paradigms from the paradigm that ruled and uh, over the last 20-30 years internationally and got us into a lot of the mess. But there's other ways that are much more modern. We must find ways of linking climate change action with recovery from the crisis, of course. Poverty, uh, reduction and focusing on the poor. As Gordon Brown said yesterday, global inequality. He's used the word global inequality more than anyone else. I think that needs to be made a major issue. It's been swept under the carpet for the last 25 years. There's all sorts of actions for redistribution with growth, and they need to be discovered and applied. Uh, My name is Salil Shetty. I work for the UN Millennium Campaign on the Millennium Development Goals. I think uh, the focus of UK development policy should be on increasing accountability of governments to citizens, particularly the poorest people, whether it's in rich countries or poor countries. That should be the focus, increasing accountability of governments. Hello, my name is Jingu. I'm the research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. About the future of development studies, I have two points. First, the development is not about a donor and a recipient anymore. We must think beyond this kind of relationship. And we should talk about development partnership especially regarded uh, to the development issues in Africa. Secondly, we must uh, strengthen the voice of the emerging economy. I think, you know, say for example, in terms of uh, China, China's uh, development experience is very attractive and appealing to many African countries. So we need to strengthen this uh, kind of uh, South-South cooperation. Thanks. Coming up in a while, I'll be talking to Simon Maxwell and Nancy Birdsell about the conference. But first, let's focus on one of the purposes of this meeting, which is to talk about how UK development policy might change. In January 2009, the Secretary of State, Douglas Alexander, announced that the British government would publish a new policy paper in the summer about development. 
Douglas Alexander said that the White Paper would set out the role of the UK's international development policy in an increasingly interconnected world where our economic security, food security, national security and climate security are shared with countries in both the global north and the global south. I spoke before the conference to the most senior civil servant in the UK Department for International Development, Manoush Shafiq. Manoush is the Permanent Secretary, which for those of you not familiar with the British system, means that she's one rung below the ministers. Manoush, thanks for coming on to Development Drums. Thanks, Owen. I'm happy to be here. I'm guessing that you're the first Permanent Secretary ever to appear in a podcast. Is that right, or do you know anyone else? <laughs> I suspect you're right. I suspect you're right. My... um. We're not usually at the technological frontier in the permanent secretary community. Well, it's great to have you here. Let's start with why we need to have a white paper now. There have been three white papers on development since Labour came to power in 1997. Four, actually, if you count the white paper on trade and development. And in the 22 years before that, there were no white papers at all. So do you think we might have gone from having too few white papers to perhaps having too many? Well, I think a lot of times you write a white paper because you've changed your mind or you think something differently. I think this white paper is fundamentally about the world changing. And so many of the approaches that we had to development uh, look less relevant in a context which is very, very different. Clearly, the, the, the global economic downturn is the centerpiece of the changes that we face, but that has huge spillovers in terms of global governance, the balance of power across different countries, uh, and the debate about the nature of economic development and growth. And I think those are some of the big themes that the white paper will have to tackle. So are you envisaging that there'll be a significant change in policy as a result of this changing environment? Well, I think that is that is still to be decided and what those policy changes are, are are still up for grabs. I think what we've got clarity on at the moment is is what the nature of the issues are and the centerpiece of the white paper will be the theme of interconnectedness and interdependence because if anything this global crisis has shown us that even more than when we talked about globalization, that events very, very far away can have massive ramifications across the planet. Uh, so in that context of, of interdependence, the nature of many policy solutions have to be interdependent and shared and joined. And in particular, in three areas, which is what the white paper will focus on, the nature of economic security, the nature of political and conflict and physical security, and climate security. And those three policy areas are the ones that we intend to focus on. Part of the process of developing the White Paper is this big conference. Do you want to say something about the purpose of this conference and how it will contribute to the White Paper? Well, the conference will be actually an important mechanism for us to get lots of ideas from some of the world's experts on these themes of physical security, climate security and economic security. So we will have a range of heads of state, prominent academics, NGOs, think tanks and others. But we're also launching a public consultation which starts next week in which we're hoping to get lots of ideas from people all around the world about some of these major themes. And that consultation will run throughout the process of the white paper until we complete it. That will be an online consultation, will it? That's correct. We'll do an online consultation and we'll also do physical events, both in developing countries and across the UK. People should have an opportunity to come to an event, perhaps in their country, or to participate online and contribute their views? 
Absolutely, and we would very much welcome that. I know in the past white papers that we've done, the public consultation process has been very, very active, and we've gotten lots of interesting ideas from that process. And the white paper itself, you're expecting to publish that before the parliamentary recess, so does that mean about July? That's correct, that's correct. We would do it before parliament, uh, the parliamentary recess, so sometime before mid-July. The theme of this conference is interdependence and interconnectedness. Can you tell us how you expect these themes to be addressed? Sure. Um, it's probably easiest to talk about the topics in the context of the three themes. So on economic security, uh, which will be obviously a major theme because of the crisis, um, there will be a big focus on the issue of the need for coordinated policy responses to deal with the crisis. And that isn't just coordination among the rich countries who are at the, in the eye of the storm, but it's also to do with the emerging markets and developing countries who are at the receiving end of many of these shocks. Um, in particular, uh, I think from the development perspective on that, we will be emphasizing issues around the importance of sticking to commitments that were made in terms of aid commitments uh, at Glen Eagles in 2005 and how those commitments are really key for developing countries to be able to weather this storm. Uh, and second, the issue about protecting the poorest during this crisis, uh, the poorest in, in, in high, middle, and low-income countries in particular, but particularly in low-income countries because they'll be the most vulnerable, and ensuring that we have mechanisms in place so that the poorest countries uh, and the poorest people in those countries are protected. Can I just interrupt you there? On this question of how we protect the poorest and make sure that the aid continues to flow, in a way, you seem to be swimming against the tide. The evidence seems to be already that donors have begun to cut their aid budgets. Ireland, for example, has announced a cut in its aid. And it looks as if, even for those countries that have not announced a cut, that it's much less likely that they'll meet the commitments that they made in 2005, for example, at the G8 meeting in Glen Eagles. So what, what, is, what can the British government do to make sure that the rest of the world actually sticks to the commitments they've made? Well, I think it's, it's very similar to the debate around protectionism in the sense that I think we would argue and what we will argue in this white paper is that it is in the interests of, of rich countries to make sure that developing countries prosper. And it's in our longer term interest to make those investments in development so that they do prosper. And just like with protectionism, in the short run, you may have the illusion that you're, doing your, you're looking after your own self-interest. In the long run, you're doing yourself in. And I think we will make the same sort of case for development assistance. The second form of security is around climate change. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. And there, too, it's quite obvious. You need a global solution to this. Uh, and you need a global solution which is, uh, which is around getting creating clean development paths for especially the big emitters and giving them options so that they can mitigate more cheaply. But you also need a compensation mechanism so that the poorest countries can finance their adaptation. They are truly the victims of this phenomenon. Now, of course, again, you will probably accuse me of swimming against the tide because this is a very tough time to be asking people to make investments in climate security, which will, I think we can't you know, there are, there are some which will be low cost, like energy efficiency, and will actually generate returns very quickly. But, but there will be additional costs in the short run until we develop technologies for clean growth. But again, um, I think the case we'll try and make in this white paper will be to show that 
in the long term, these investments have very high returns. The costs of not addressing climate change, not just for the Bangladeshis of the world, but also for the UKs of the world in terms of unpredictable climate, unpredictable weather, flooding, and huge kind of economic costs from that will be significant. And we'll try and quantify those and show how it's in the interests of, of both rich and poor countries to come together for a deal that is seen to be fair and effective for dealing with climate change. And then the last theme you mentioned was food security and conflict prevention, right? Yes, that's correct. And on that theme, uh, it will mainly focus on the risks of conflict and conflict spillovers. The nature of conflict has changed. The sort of, you know, 19th century interstate warfare is is you know, fortunately in many ways becoming a thing of the past. And conflicts are now often within countries and around border areas with spillover effects. One thinks of a country like DRC, whose conflict has infected Central Africa and and undermined stability and prosperity in that part of the world. World for for a very very long time. Once again, it feels as if there's a risk of swimming against the tide here. There's something of a mood against interventionism, isn't there? A feeling that our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan have made many progressive people question the wisdom of getting involved in other people's conflicts and of not quite knowing how that will end. So, what kind of policies and strategies are we going to be able to look at for the development community? that address conflict, but without this uncomfortable sense of interventionism? Mm. I think it depends very much on the nature of the intervention. Um, I think we would all agree that we have all under-invested in, in conflict prevention rather, rather than ex post dealing with the mess. Uh, so I think we'll probably see a big emphasis on, on the high returns to conflict prevention and the need to protect resources so that, so that those very long-term, quiet, low-cost, but quite effective investments in conflict prevention are protected. Um, second, I think there are very, very high returns to peacekeeping. Uh, and political negotiations. I think one of the main lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan is that military solutions can only get you so far, and in the end, without a political agreement and a political resolution to the conflict, you will never be able to move on to reconstruction and development. So a much bigger emphasis on, on political reconciliation uh, around conflicts. And then I think for, from the development perspective, more discussion about what development can do in the early stages of post-conflict. We have struggled, to be honest. We have a very good model of delivering development, or a better model of delivering development in stable, relatively good-performing countries with willing states who are interested in development. We are less good, and we have weaker models for unwilling states, fragile situations, and immediate post-conflict situations. And I think we need to test ourselves and try and think about what is it that we can do to try, in the first instance, to use development to, to reinforce peace, uh, and then in the second instance to actually use that political space created by peace to build long-term development. Manoush, thanks very much for coming on to Development Drums. We really look forward to seeing how the Department for International Development develops these themes and ideas in the run-up to the white paper. You can find out more from developmentdrums.org or presumably via the DFID website at www.diffid.gov.uk. Thank you very much and I look forward to getting all sorts of input from your, uh, from your listeners.
So here we are at the end of the Poverty Summit after two days of discussion and debate and I'm joined by the heads of two of the most prestigious international development think tanks. Simon Maxwell is the outgoing director of the Overseas Development Institute in the UK and Nancy Birdsell is the president of the Centre for Global Development in Washington DC. Nancy, hi. Thank you, Alan. Simon, hi. Hi. Let's begin by asking what has changed. What has been, what, have, what are the implications of what's happened over the last year for the way we think about development issues? Well, I'll tell you what's really interesting is that when the crisis first hit Arthur Lehman Brothers, there was a strong view, I think, in London that this was basically a developed country crisis. It was a financial market crisis. There would be a knock-on impact on developing countries, but it could be fixed if people met their Glen Eagles commitments, uh, and that view's changed. Uh, people now see that the, there are very strong transmission belts between the crisis in developed countries and the crisis in developing countries. Growth forecasts have come down almost every week. Numbers who are going to be driven into poverty have gone up every week. But what was really important about this conference was to see the way in which the UK leadership, at least, has put the development question right at the centre of its response. And I think anybody who was in the room when Gordon Brown spoke and can watch it, presumably, on the, on the, uh, on the website that DFID will have for the conference, would have seen a, a person whose body language and moral and emotional commitment were absolutely evident to everybody. And he talked about development being central to the G20 meeting uh, uh, and the importance of not losing momentum on the MDGs and I, many people found that inspiring, I, I did and I think we can do something with that. Let's start by looking at the impact of the financial crisis on developing countries because when it, when it began people were saying well it's a banking crisis, it's a credit crunch, it won't necessarily affect developing countries directly and yeah, it might have impact on investment but there isn't all that much direct investment in developing countries so maybe it won't have a big impact. But I think now people are beginning to say that there is an impact, uh, for example, on exports from developing countries, uh, perhaps on prices, uh, perhaps on remittances. Nancy, do you think that the financial and economic crisis is having a serious impact in developing countries? Oh, yes, and I think it's, uh, we're only at the beginning of an unfolding series of effects. Um, in the middle-income countries, where many of the world's poor reside, there's, we've seen already in Eastern Europe, in the transitional economies, um, a, round, a round of effects because of their difficulty in dealing with their debt problems and their currency problems in the face of the crisis. Uh, the ILO has said, estimated that 50 million jobs will be lost. The World Bank recently put out its estimate that 50 million people uh, will move back into poverty that had risen above the poverty line. There's going to be, I think the way to think of it is that it was a financial crisis that became an economic crisis in the rich world that's now becoming an economic jobs and social crisis in the developing countries. So what we've got with both climate change and with the financial crisis is a sense that this is a crisis that they did nothing to contribute to and which they're at least bearing some of the pain of, in the case of climate change, most of the pain of at the moment. And uh, are we in, in that situation with the financial crisis, that they will be more affected by the financial crisis than, than people in rich countries, or that they'll 
share some of oh, the Oh, de definitely, they will be. I mean, in a welfare sense, people in developing countries will be more affected. Yeah. That is always the case with, uh, there's a kind of asymmetry about the way the globalization process works, right? That the closer you are to uh, poverty, uh, the more vulnerable you are. And that's true for countries, and it's true for people. You know, I think what's changed, in addition to the point that Simon made, includes this interdependent, the, the reality of the interdependence striking home in an asymmetric way. What was interesting to me at the short period of time that I was here at the conference was the sense of um, uh, injustice uh, and unfairness that was expressed by a lot of the people who were participating in the conference and some of the speakers. And that goes right back to what you were saying, Owen, that there's something about the financial crisis and the other global crisis of climate change which really brings out this asymmetry in who pays, who, who's benefited from globalization and who's now paying for what you could call the downside of uh, the excesses of globalization. Can I just, just, just let me just add one thing on, on what it means to be poor and about the way in which the ratchets work. Because it isn't just the case that your income goes down temporarily and then goes up again and nothing else has changed. People sell their assets. You might make your living with a donkey cart. There's no food in the house. You have to sell the donkey cart. You're noticeably worse off before the crisis after the crisis than you were before. Children whose nutrition is damaged by lack of income in the household are damaged for life. They, are, they will grow less tall, they will have lower productivity, they will learn more slowly, they will become more sick, they will have diseases which don't hit them until they are middle-aged or older, and they will often pass on those infirmities to their children. You know, and that's why one of the things that came out of this conference for me was the sense of urgency. And when Douglas Alexander spoke on the first day, he started, he launched the conference by talking about the sense of urgency. And when Gordon Brown spoke in, um, in New York a month after becoming prime minister, he declared a development emergency because we weren't reaching the MDGs. Since then, in the 18 months that have followed, we've had much better awareness of the dangers of climate. We've had uh, the financial crisis and now the recession. Security has not got any better in some parts of the world, like Darfur. So emergency on top of emergency, and it has very long-term human consequences. I think that, that critical point, that the temporary impact in a rich country, you might lose your job, it's, it's temporarily uh, a, a serious problem for you, but you, it, it isn't going to consign your children to poverty in a way that you get these, these downward shocks for somebody in a poor country can, can bring a, a step change downwards, which means that they and their children will be in poverty for generations. Yeah, we, have, we have tremendous amount of evidence for that from Latin America, which for decades has suffered a series of uh, localized shocks. Uh, the, the one that I remember best is that in Mexico, after the tequila crisis in the mid-90s, uh, the, there was a high dropout rate for children from school, and subsequently, many of those children did not go back. So that was the case of stripping a future asset 
just as Simon was saying. Now that brings us to a kind of rich set of questions about the institutional response, because one of the things that happens in this kind of crisis, if anything, is that the rich countries are interested in cutting aid spending, so that you have a, a pro-cyclical effect that, that the rich countries feel that they can't afford development assistance, charity begins at home, they've got a crisis at home, so they actually, uh, that exaggerates the effect in poor countries, so that far from, you know, we don't have a system like we do in our own countries where the money comes in almost automatically, there is no, there's no safety automatic net. Automatic stabilizer. Right, there's no automatic stabilizer in the global economy. And that comes, uh, in a way, Nancy, to your point earlier, about the lack, there's no global polity. There's no system of global social justice that's there to catch people when they fall into that situation. But, Simon, you were saying earlier, you kicked off this discussion by saying that what is striking about this conference and about the body language from the ministers is this sense that we're, that that the needs and the interests of developing countries are in the conversation. But is that just in this room? Is that just with the couple of hundred people gathered here in the city of London? I mean, it seems to me that, that the other 19 members of the G20 probably don't see it that way. First of all, does everybody in the UK see it that way? Let's start with that. And, and uh, it is very important that Gordon Brown and his ministers are so strong on keeping development at the forefront of the public mind and the top of the agenda. And people said during the conference, very interestingly, you know, in the 1980s when we had a crisis, it was actually the poorest people in the UK who were the most generous supporters um, of charities that were working in developing countries. Bob Geldof said apparently that in, during we had a big miners' strike uh, and it was the miners who'd just been on strike who obviously themselves were going through tremendously difficult times as families, they were the ones who were putting money into the charity boxes. But I think it has to be, it's a story that has to be told, and the point about political leadership is that you don't, don't just wait for what the newspapers tell you to do, you go out and tell a story and you win people over, and that's what doing politics is about. Now, will it happen in the G8 and, and, and the wider group of donor countries is a very important question. Even before this crisis, we were something like $30 billion, that was 25, 30% below what had been promised for 2010. And we know who the people with falling or inadequate aid budgets were. Um, Italy was, a, was one, uh, Japan, Italy, France, uh, uh, France, Germany, Germany. Now, some of Portugal, them have made promises. Ireland. Um, and the NGOs are focused very much on using the G8 in Madalena in Italy in the summer as a way to kind of help make sure people reiterate those promises. But promises are one thing, actually putting money into budgets is another. And even if countries provide the money, will it be for tide aid, which is the second best aid? Will it be in the form of loans rather than grants? Uh, will it be tied up in all sorts of conditionalities that is not very helpful to developing countries? Um, Countries have no fiscal space. They have the most vulnerable so countries. So just to explain uh, it, countries have no fiscal space means that if you're a very poor country, you don't have enough money to make discretionary decisions about uh, increasing spending for people who are vulnerable, for example. Because you just, where are you going to get the money from? You, don't, you haven't got any tax revenue and you can't borrow it. And your public finances are probably getting worse as a result of the crisis and your balance yeah, of payments are deteriorating as a result of the crisis. Uh, so that's why they need these transfers and, and they need this support. Nancy, how did this sound to you flying in literally overnight from America? I mean, did this sound like a conversation that 
you could imagine a group, I mean, are there people having this conversation in the States? Did this seem like a completely different perspective, a completely different take on the, on the world's problems? It, well, yes and no. I think there's a tremendous amount of discussion in development and in international economic circles in think tank land in Washington, D.C., about the, on the positive side, the fact that there's a, a G20 club that seems to be taking shape now at the head of state level. And so, and the idea is that the, the creation of a G20 club is extracting something positive from the problems that the crisis is preventing in that it represents more legitimacy, more representation of more countries, and it also captures the idea that uh, we need the Asians and the Latins at the table as much as they used to be seen as needing the rich, the traditional donors and the rich countries at the table. That there's a new world in, in aid per se that includes the big foundations. It can include China. It does include China in some sense. It can include the oil economies. It can include the corporate sector. So th I think that's, that's one way in which there's a similarity. On the other hand, what struck me is uh, hearing about, and I've heard Gordon Brown speak before, this emphasis on our common future. I like the title of the conference, Securing Our Common Future. The discussion of development in the U.S. Hasn't, hasn't reached that level, in part because there hasn't been leadership and there isn't a focal point in the U.S. administration, and there hasn't been ever any institutional base that looks anything like what DFID represents in the U.K. So the, you know, the other thing that struck me about the afternoon that I spent here is, and looking at the overall agenda, it's not just about aid. And uh, at the Center for Global Development in Washington, we've been pushing that message very hard, that development should be seen as much more about all these other mechanisms by which we are dependent upon each other, rich and poor worlds and middle-income countries and much more emphasis on the global challenges, the need to deal with the global commons problems like climate change. But also, you know, illicit drug trafficking, sex trafficking, all of the things that are the downside in a way of globalization, which has its benefits, but now we're, we're living through the downside. Nancy and I agree on the following, that the G8, which is the seven rich countries plus Russia, um, has been an important club, but suffers from the problem that there are many people excluded from it, particularly the large powers in Asia, South Africa, Brazil, so on. And furthermore, actually, the G8 doesn't do anything other than issue a communique which then passes the baton to someone else in the WTO or in the UN or in the World Bank. So something needs to change in that governance uh, structure. And how would we set about designing a new governance structure. We have some principles. Uh, we'd want uh, universality in some respects. We'd want legitimacy. We'd want accountability. And we'd want effectiveness and efficiency. And the problem is that if you look at the current range of institutions available to us, 
none of them meets all those different criteria. And in particular, we have a set of institutions which do have universality, legitimacy, accountability, which are mostly within the UN context, not the G8, not the G77, but the G190-something, which is the universal membership of the UN. But certainly on this side of the discussion around uh, human development and economic and social policy, the UN has not done well, and ECOSOC in particular is known to be a very problematic body. So if we'd said we have a global financial crisis of the like we haven't seen since the 1920s, uh, come in, open the door to ECOSOC, what should we do? We'd have got absolutely nowhere. So we needed the G20 because it is the body which doesn't have legitimacy and accountability and universality, but does have efficiency and effectiveness. The challenge then is to use that body as a platform to bring in the people who are not at the table, the Burundis, the Surinams, the Switzerlands, uh, the many other countries. And to make sure that the G20, which is very influential, takes the lead in the reform of the international system more widely. So my dream, if you like, is that we could open the door on ECOSOC and there would be a really good discussion and there would be action and it would be accountable um, and quick. Um, but we're certainly not there yet. The question is, is that just a hopeless dream um, or is there a way in which we can use the G20 as a platform? And, and do you continue to buy the basic building block of this, which is that um, member states, the, the Westphalian notion of the state, gets together in a, in a supranational organization like a G or, a, or the UN or something and is represented at the level of the states? Or do you think that we need a more... A, a, a version of democracy and a, a polity that is about that has a more direct relationship with the citizens. I mean, do you do you buy the kind of basic model that we're all working with, which well, is the, the, the UK yeah, and the US sure gets represented? Let me jump in here. I, I think that um, what I buy is the idea that we need a kind of maybe the a hodgepodge almost of clubs of nations and institutions that are truly global. So the good thing is that at the club level, which is not an institution, it's just meetings, at the head of state level amongst clubs, we've gone from, we think we've, we're going from G7 to G20. It's quite disorderly, and in fact, something like 26 or 27 not 20, countries right. will and be represented. Plus international organizations and, organizations and various others. And way too many European countries, given that Europe also has the EU there. But So that's one thing. Now, the second thing is that even that club, as Simon has suggested, as Nairi Wood suggested today at the conference, is not fully representative or legitimate or democratic uh, because it doesn't rep have the low-income countries, it doesn't have um, any revolving constituencies at the regional level. I want to mention at the club level a very interesting paper that's on our website by Vijaya Ramachandran. What they propose, what she proposes with her co-author Enrique Rueda Sabater, is a 2% approach. Namely, that there should be a club that is, is made up of countries, yes, countries, sovereign states, that have either 2% of global GDP 
which will make them effective because they'll have economic power, or 2% of global population, which will help make them representative of most of the world's people. And they find, you know, 16 countries that make up this group, and then they say there ought to be uh, regional representation of other constituencies that are not included in this group. So, you know, that's, that's going back to first principles about effectiveness. But you're still working within the framework of, the, of, of nation states being represented. In that is still the reality we need to live with. We need to work that more nation states are democratic and representative. But in the meantime, we might as well work on making, at the global level, something that's more democratic and, and representative. You know, this is a long-term long transformation, of course. It's not going to happen, certainly, at the G20 in April in London. But I think the, and, and it, is, it is an industry. I have a library, I'm sure, Nancy does, I'm sure you do, Owen, of proposals and, and, and formulae and so on. But as we think about this, the EU doesn't offer a bad model and the way in which the European Union has moved in a number of different ways. It's become more democratic because the European Parliament has acquired greater influence over policy. Um, there's been a long and complicated discussion about how to represent small versus large countries in the EU. There's and we have a system qualified qualified majority voting right. it's called and you have to have a certain threshold before decisions can be passed. And and the Lisbon Treaty, if it's agreed later in the year, will make that a little bit more uh, sophisticated. When it comes to the aid relationship, the Cotonou Convention um, which is a convention between the European Union and the countries of the African, Caribbean, Pacific group, 76 or 77 of them. Um, I'm not a great enthusiast for the African, Caribbean and Pacific group actually, but the Cotonou Convention has in it statements of principles, arbitration procedures and political oversight through a joint council of ministers and a joint parliamentary assembly. So on the Cotonou Convention, which covers aid and trade and political relationships between the EU and this group of ACP countries, there is a, an arena in which political accountability through the voices of parliamentarians can be expressed. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's a good model. There's a lot of talk about uh, changing that and, and moving the money into the European Union budget, I've been very insistent that we should try to retain that political accountability in the system. So, of course, you're right. You can't simply have a United Nations based on member states which range in numbers from 1,500 million to half a million and in GDP from, you know, whatever the U.S. economy is, is it 13 trillion? Mm -hmm. 14, uh, down maybe. 14, well, down, maybe to, down, to, to, 13 down to some <laughs> millions. Uh, and expect it to work in the same way that the village assembly would. You know, I think, let me add something on this I issue of the clubs, which is that we also need, we, I think the world benefits from having these clubs, and they'll be shifting and changing, and that's natural. But what's really problematic and what really needs to be fixed is the institutions, which the G8 as a club steered, frankly, you know, I mean, the G8 always met, and we'll probably meet again informally the day before the IMF and World Bank meetings. The G8, in some form, was always in the background 
uh, with the Security Council, big Security Council issues at the United Nations, because that's where the power was. Now that power is more distribu distributed and the, with rising Asia and so on, uh, that change has to be also reflected in the institutions, and institutions matter because they capture the rule, they embody rules that are, create more long-term commitments. Uh, countries that are members of institutions have to play by those rules. Good afternoon, my name is Pierre Jacquet. I'm the chief economist and head of strategy of the French Development Agency. Well, I think the, 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 the whole job of uh, development finance institutions has changed dramatically over the last few years. We are now confronted with a series of issues that require real global collective action in which both North and South are going to be uh, prominent actors. And I see the role of development finance institutions are being a sort of currency to, pro to, 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 to create this collective action. So it's no longer only uh, about poverty reduction, even though that remains, of course, very important. It's no longer about promoting growth, but it's about creating this sort of collective action behind global public goods, uh, fighting climate change, adapting to climate change, fighting uh, global pandemics, uh, preserving biodiversity. And that changes totally uh, the kind of action that we can have as development finance institutions in the field. And it changes our role from providing finance to using finance as catalyst for more global action. Hello, my name is Frances Hill of the Development Studies Association and the views I'm about to express now are mine and mine, not the DSAs. Um, it's in the light of the panel that we've just seen on violence and conflict. There are an awful lot of men on the panel, one woman, and I'd just like to make two points that if there were more women in positions of power, that A, the financial crisis on Wall Street would never have happened because women would be more responsible with other people's money and B, there would be fewer conflicts in the world. Uh, my name is John Clark. I was formerly with the World Bank but recently left, so I'm now independent. Uh, I think in, as the bank, as the, as DFID develops its new policy, I think two things should come forward. One is uh, more of an emphasis on issues of crisis, issues of insecurity, the spikes, because it's the poor people who particularly are hit by the spikes. So much more attention to not the aggregate issue, uh, but controlling issues of security for the poor. The second thing is that I think so much of development assistance assumes a relationship between a rich country and a poor country, and that there should be much more focus on helping developing countries to work together. Trade links within Africa, uh, investment, getting investment flowing not from China to Western banks and then back to developing countries, but getting investment flowing from south southern countries to southern countries. Let, let, let me move on to the, to the development agenda because part of the purpose of this conference was, was to ask what the development agenda is in the light of the financial crisis and particularly there's been a sense here I think that there is an opportunity to redefine 
uh, what we mean by the development agenda. That, 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 that uh, although it seems strange to, to to talk of a of a financial crisis as being an opportunity, and of course there's a potential massive threat to the development industry, which is that people again might well say that aid is something they can't afford at this time and that, that we need to look after ourselves rather than the rest of the world. But there's also a huge opportunity here. Can we come to what your sense is of whether there really is an opportunity, and if so, what it is that if you were in the British government you would be writing down in this white paper or what it is that you think that the, the world system should what, and given that we've got a new American administration, what their development policy should look like. Simon. You have to work from the outside in uh, and although institutions are endlessly fascinating we have to start with real world, real people. I, I think there's a tendency to let the financial crisis dominate the discussion and exclude almost everything else uh, and in this conference the first day was almost entirely dominated by the financial crisis. The financial crisis is really serious, uh, make no mistake about that, but we have had financial crises before and with the right actions and the right length and of time money. and enough money we will solve it. You know, if you look at the Asian financial crisis, which is the most recent one we had, there was a rapid pace of growth in Asia, there was a sudden marked dip for one, two, three years and then growth resumed. Um, so I think that although we need to protect the poorest and so on, let's not think that we are going to be mired in recession for the rest of our working lives. But it is a game changer because it makes us think very carefully about how we handle risk, about how we regulate the economy, about issues to do with um, uh, 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 engaging with the new globalization. But it's only one of the things that we have to be struggling with. We had some very good sessions at this, we had a very good session at this conference on climate change. Uh, the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change, Ed Miliband, and uh, Professor Nick Lord Stern, or is it Lord Professor? Lord the anyway, Professor the Lord uh, Nick. <laughs> um, and it resonated with me because we've been running a series of meetings in Parliament uh, at ODI, which you can find, by the way, on our website. And we've had a number of scientists come in who have been unequivocal, unequivocally alarmist. If you remember that the the Stern report and indeed a lot of the Copenhagen, the, the, the UN framework on climate change discussions have been framed around the idea that if we take action now, we can hold global warming to two degrees centigrade, which is serious but manageable. The scientists would have been telling us, and these are respectable scientists using UNFCC science, that there is no way that we can hold global warming to two degrees. They're talking about four degrees, even six degrees. Global warming at that level means mass migration, it means mass extinction of species, it means the whole of southern Europe turns to desert, uh, for example. And I'm shocked, actually, by how difficult it is to get the development community to take climate change seriously. It's true in my own institute, and I don't know whether Nancy has the same observation. You get climate change specialists. And then you say to them, look, we need to mainstream this. This needs, you're working on poverty, it's about climate change. You're working on international trade, it's about climate change. You're working on humanitarian relief, it's about climate change. Let's make it, main, let's make it mainstreamed. And we know how difficult it is to mainstream uh, topics. We had it with gender, we had it with poverty, we've had it with food security. But there is absolutely no time to waste. There is no time to waste, I think. So put these things together, uh, the financial crisis, 
lots of other long-term changes which we discussed in the background paper for the report for the conference which is also on the diffid website and climate change i think development will not be the same again and that is a challenge which well we need to take much more seriously than we have so far and that's what the white paper needs to be about there's a link on the development drums website to odi's excellent background paper for the conference which you can find at developmentdrums.org. Nancy, what, is, what was your take? Yes, I think that it's an o this is an opportunity to change the development discourse uh, or the narrative and to focus much more on interdependence. That the financial crisis, the economic crisis is bringing home the reality of interdependence, including in the U.S. and I think in Europe, certainly with China, for example, but more generally with the rest of the world. I mean, the reality that securing our common future is, is about protecting even the prosperity and security of people in the rich world uh, in, a, in, a, in a system in which what happens in developing countries obviously matters. Uh, it matters when there's conflict, it matters because the, the developing countries, by the way, on climate change, they're, being, they're the victims in some respects, but it's also true that they have to come to the table and also deal with the issue. Uh, what, we sh what we have is evidence from the looking at the numbers that if there were no north, if there had been no greenhouse gas emissions from any countries in the so-called north, then what is happening in the developing world would accumulate by 2025 to your two to three degrees increase, yes, to where we are now. So China knows that, India knows that, they're beginning to engage. It's, it's one type of interdependence. There are many other types of interdependence, and I think my sense from the conference and what I've heard about what's planned in the white paper is that it will be much more about these common interests at the global level, uh, which coincide very directly with what I would call or what we used to call the development agenda. I think the other thing that's coming out is that development, and we have to convey this to citizens and taxpayers in the US and the UK also, is not just about some paternalistic transfer of charity from rich to poor world. It's much more about working together to secure a common future in which what happens to this, you know, five out of six or more people in the developing world uh, is going to affect what happens to our children and our grandchildren. But it seems to me we're on a balance between two different stories, two different narratives in the, in the jargon. One is, look, what happens in the, in the poor world affects us, what we do affects people. In the, we have to figure out some system that balances and arbitrates between these different interests and concerns and that's that's one version of we you know we need to build our common future the other version is you know what we live in a, a global society that that um, it, people in rich countries also care from a moral perspective because we're all part of you know the same global village that, that, that there's a kind of moment here where people are saying we care for people beyond the, the boundaries of our nation state and some people were trying to make that second argument. It's not obvious to me that there would be a huge consensus for that uh, beyond the 
couple of hundred people here at this conference. Um, we commissioned a small survey with the NGOs on British public opinion um, in the summer last year. And if you ask people, do you care about international development and poverty, they say yes. If, on the other hand, you say to them, what do you really care about? They don't mention international development and poverty. They talk about uh, the National Health Service, uh, education, the state of the roads, whether the dustbins are being emptied and so on. So we tried something different in this survey. And you know, you can get any result you like with a survey. But we asked people, here's a list of international problems that might affect your personal welfare. Uh, migration pressures, uh, drug trafficking, disease epidemics, climate uh, change, three, or, three, three or climate change, three or four year deforestation, three or four others. Do you think these are important problems or not? And they all said yes. And then you say to them, here is a list of the instruments the UK government has in its attempt to deal with these international problems, the army, Navy and Air Force, um, foreign policy, aid. How important do you think these instruments are? And of course, you construct the argument that way, you get strong support for aid. So I think that is the kind of argument. You need to make both arguments. I think we mustn't walk away from the moral argument, and ministers have been very clear about that. But at the same time, we can make the instrumental argument. Now, the point about the instrumental argument is that it leads you in a slightly different direction as to how you spend aid because you can't say we think aid is really important because it is going to help us to deal with, say, drug trafficking, but by the way, we're, all going, to sp we're going to spend it all in some place where there is no right. reducing into mortality. Yeah, so, so you, have to be, you have to be honest with the public. Can I just, while I'm, just, while I'm speaking, let me just say one other thing I want to say to Nancy is that, uh, and it's relevant to your point about the 200 people in the room, we take development very, very seriously. Here we are four months after the election and two full months after the inauguration. Um, a president that we all admire enormously and who makes me cry every time I listen to him because he is so moving and so powerful. Where is, where are the development appointments that are going to lead? Where's the policy that is going to put into practice the kind of vision that he laid out in his inauguration speech? They're very slow, aren't they, in getting their act together? Yes, um, but uh, it's hard to say that they're slow on development relative to other issues. I mean, is it, there's no sign <coughs> that development is being shortchanged yet compared to, you know, appointments at the Treasury, Department of Treasury and the Department of State. Other than at the top level, this is a function of the way the U.S. government operates as a presidential and not a ministerial or parliamentary system. So that's one thing. So we can't say that there's a lack of commitment, at least in principle, to development based on the, slow the slowness of the appointment process. However, it is also true that we don't have in the U.S. system a point person on development. Uh, Simon, you said, you know, the, the question on instruments in the survey was, do you use the military instrument or the diplomatic instrument or aid? The way I think of it is, and we put this in our book from the center on a global development agenda for the next president, foreign policy should have three legs, defense, diplomacy, and development. And there's really nothing like a development leg in the U.S. system. 
There's a USAID program. There's a couple of other aid programs. There's no necessary, you know, there's no person at the table bringing a development perspective to the discussion of the climate change legislation in the U.S., uh, bringing a discussion of development to the way we deal with trade issues, uh, the kind of thing that Evelyn Herfkins uh, mentioned this afternoon. So that's really, you know, a key issue in the U.S. is will there be anything that looks like DFID? Will there be anything that looks like support for it for the development agenda? Uh, Can we pause on whether DFID looks like DFID in this respect? I mean, because we've often talked about DFID turning from being an aid ministry to a development, an aid agency to a development ministry. But I wonder, Simon, whether you have a sense of how much that transformation has has moved on from the rhetoric to the reality. Do you think, I mean, it seems to me on something like trade, they've they've got very stuck in, but there are lots of things where it's not so clear. But, but can I answer that question from the perspective of someone from outside? I mean, maybe it's not ideal, but doesn't this conference represent, in a way, uh, in the agenda items, the reality that DFID is more than an aid agency? There was discussion of food about security. Presumably, discussion of you know food stocks, food prices, discussion of climate change was here. Discussion of the multilateral institutions and the UN conflict, or conflict, fragile states. Well, that's closer to what we think of still as aid in the more conventional sense. But it may seem to you from close to it that it's not fully adequate from outside, from a U.S. perspective. It's very close to a model. I, I think there are um, lots of things to say about this. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that it is true that the Labour government, when it came into power in 1997, made a very important statement of intent when it changed the name and created an independent department for international development, and it gave the minister, who was then Claire Short, access at a much higher level in the system than she would have done had she been lost somewhere in... Uh, the Foreign Office um, and we've seen very strong relationships develop with the people who do trade in what is now called the Department of Business, Business Enterprise and Regulatory Enterprise Reform, and Regulatory Reform Burt, where there is a joint minister, in fact Douglas Alexander's deputy, the Minister of State, Gareth Thomas, is a joint minister with effectively the Trade Ministry which is very important. We've seen very close relations with the Foreign Office and it was very good that David Miliband, the Foreign Secretary, came and spoke over drinks yesterday at this conference and close relationships with the Climate Change Ministry, which is um, Ed Miliband, David's brother. But I think it, it, it is also uh, easy to create a story in which everything was wrong before 1997 and the fact of the matter is that most development operations in the world would be better than they are now if they just looked like ODA did in 1997. ODA is the previous name for DFID. One strong focal point for all the aid expenditure, working closely with the Treasury on debt and other things, 
as opposed to the United States system where the aid budget is dispersed through at least a dozen different agencies uh, in Washington 25. or the system in many European countries where one bit of the government does the multilateral, another bit does the bilateral and often another bit within that does the loans. Well that's true in the US um, as well. And, and, and so actually just to get to ODA in 1997 would be a good start for the Americans and for quite a lot of others. And then we can start to tackle the questions that, um, that Owen asks. And they're quite difficult questions because you, you have to ask what exactly does DFID have to say about foreign policy in Afghanistan? Um, I think you can be a voice, you can be an advocate, but you don't necessarily have the levers of power uh, in, in managing these joint relationships. A lot depends on trust, on joint committees, on, on some joint funding arrangements like the um, stabilization funds. Um, Owen, you've been a civil servant. You probably have a much better sense than I do, and you've been in Downing Street as well as in, in DFID. You have a, probably a better sense than, than neither Nancy or I do about how effectively the transformation is working. Well, I think, we, I, I think even DFID's strongest advocates, of which I guess I'm one, think that we could do more. And I think what we're hearing in the conference today is that there is almost no issue from banking regulation to you know, uh, immigration where there isn't a development angle that needs to be expressed in the, in, in the debate. That doesn't mean to say that the development angle should be the dominant decisive factor in determining British government policy, but it needs to be present. And I think the question you asked, Simon, about what's the, what's the power, what's, the, what's DFID's offer, if it's not about spending money, where DFID clearly, by and large, has control of the money, for aid, what is, what is it that DFID brings to those conversations? And it has to be, in the end, partly its analysis and its evidence and its experience and its, its ability and willingness and mandate to speak for uh, the long-term British interest in reducing poverty. Uh, yeah, I think that actually that's a very good way to put it, uh, that as a development agency, we could really benefit in the U.S. from a voice at the table that brings the long-term perspective. The example of the mistakes that have been made is actually in the U.S. case in conflict-ridden countries in Iraq and Afghanistan where there wasn't a develop, there were not development professionals engaged in doing what we would call state building and development work, where, you know, the military filled the vacuum and tried to do some things, but we have a situation in the U.S. in which billions of dollars were spent on building infrastructure that is, was not right and is not going to be maintained in sort of helicoptering in, literally, bricks and mortar, without any discussion about partnering, about ownership, about the role of participation, about what people in the communities wanted, which development professionals would have brought. So it could be a lot worse. Uh, am I allowed to do some publicity, not for myself or ODI, but for the debate between Ashraf Ghani, who was the Minister of Finance in Afghanistan, and Andrew Natsios, who after the invasion was the administrator of USAID. And Ashraf Ghani, as people will know, has written a book with Claire Lockhart called Fixing Failed States. And I strongly recommend a review of that book by Andrew Natsios. And Owen, I'll send you the link and you can put it on the Development Drums website. 
exactly on these questions. Ashraf is very critical of, of USAID, um, the huge leakage of money between the additional grants and what actually got down to the villages, incomplete schools and so on. And um, Andrew provides an interesting, without taking sides, an interesting rebuttal of those arguments. Hard to do development. The British military, I hear, on the grapevine is pretty critical of DFID in Afghanistan because they feel they're being exposed and left to, uh, you know, carry the burden in, in Helmand. Um, and I'm sure that's, that's that DFID will have its own view on that. Very difficult to do development where there isn't security. So let's move on to some positive problems. So we've got this idea that now is a moment to rewrite the rule book, that we need to think of not just aid but development. What is it that you would do that would be different from before? What are these things that we can do in the current situation to take advantage of this opportunity? We understand global interdependence. Nancy, what would be the, or what would you like uh, the Obama administration to do in the United States? Well, I had a list of seven, um, uh, seven policy fixes or seven steps that I'd like to see the Obama administration take on the development agenda. I don't know if I can reel them all off. What? Why didn't I? Why didn't I attach them to the website? But what are the what are that, the key points? Yeah, for you? some key points are first reorganize, overhaul foreign assistance programs, so that they are not so fragmented, and give uh, the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton a mandate to do that. Um, second, that President Obama himself be a champion for development writ large in all its broad sense, securing our common future, particularly with the Congress and the American people. Because in our system, if you don't have Congress coming along, you don't get anywhere. Uh, become more multilateral, which I think in principle is on the agenda of the Obama administration. I think there's some concrete symbolic steps at, as a start that could be taken on uh, peacekeeping at the UN being more fully supported, the UN itself being more fully supported by the administration with the American people and uh, reform of the governance, particularly the leadership selection at the Bretton Woods Institution, the IMF, and the World Bank. Do climate change legislation uh, so that when the U.S. goes to Copenhagen, uh, it's clear the direction that will be taken. There's a very big risk if that legislation doesn't get largely shaped and widely discussed before the Copenhagen uh, meeting in December, that the Obama administration will be in the awkward position of trying to sign on to some understandings at Copenhagen and then going back to Congress and as happened with Kyoto, being pushed back. This has to be discussed, you know, this, that whole issue of climate change. Uh, do duty-free, quota-free access for poor countries, make it permanent, all mess, you know, make a clean start on the tremendous spaghetti of preference programs for poor countries. Do that as a development initiative. Don't call it a trade initiative or a free trade initiative. Call it a development initiative. Those are a few of the items. I think that's that all seven. The, Simon, what, what, and how does that, does that sound to you like enough in response to this, if, it would, if Britain did the same? Or? Just before we leave the United States, I would really hope that you could reduce the level of earmarking 
that takes place in uh, in the US system and that really means Congress thinking differently about development cooperation oh I mean overhauling foreign assistance programs and having a development perspective and a point person in the administrative part in the executive part of government includes completely changing the committee structure uh, there are at least 25 committees on the authorization side and what we call the appropriation side that have some hand in some aspect of this development agenda. So yes, Congress has to be. And the earmarking is just a symptom of that congressional uh, confusion. As far as, as far as the UK is concerned, Owen, we're going to be issuing our 12-point program for the G20, we're trying to cut it down. It will certainly have something to say about the need for a fiscal stimulus and about how that's channeled and the return on investment in developing countries as far as the developed countries are concerned. We're very enthused about the possibility of rolling out social protection on a much wider scale and using this opportunity to do that. Um, I share fully Nancy's a call for more multilateralism and for reform of the institutions and not just how the presidents and, and, and chief executives of these organizations um, are elected. We don't think a Doha deal is the urgent priority in 2009 because we think it's going to be very difficult to achieve. Actually the G20 has lost some credibility because it, it, it in its communique from the last meeting in uh, Washington, November. Yeah, yeah, Washington, Washington. It, call for a Doha deal I think by the end of the year and didn't deliver it and that's partly because of who's in the room and the fact that there is an ongoing process but we do think there are several other things that need to be on the trade agenda including avoiding protectionism we're worried about the um, buy America provisions in the fiscal stimulus package and the rhetoric in some parts of the US administration so avoiding protection aid for trade helping countries to uh, engage in in trade um, and you know, we have a number of other things which will become public, so watch our website. And then we need to be careful that the G20 is a bridge, the G20 agenda becomes a bridge to the longer term development agenda. And, you know, we had a conversation at the conference about the MDGs. That's the Millennium Development uh, Goals. And the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, and I'll tell you what I think about that. I think that, of course, it's good to have objectives, and, and the MDGs have served a very, very powerful political function in focusing people's minds but they look to me to be a little tired and perhaps we don't whisper that outside the corridors of the development business uh, uh, but I do think that I do think that we have to you know if everything has changed as I argued earlier on we need to be thinking about how we're going to restructure the whole development enterprise and I had my list of seven transformations which I won't read out for you but which will be in the record of the conference um, we have to start with values and with what kind of world we want to build and, and I'm passionate about global social justice as a concept uh, about environmental sustainability about mutual accountability and governance as being core principles around which we can build a new conversation and there's lots to say about the MDGs um, uh, poverty for example measured in income terms is extremely powerful but is incomplete we need a different a different way of conceptualizing human development that will drive the conversation
So, thank you both very much for joining me on Development Drums. Nancy Birdsall from the Centre for Global Development and Simon Maxwell from the Overseas Development Institute. Did I say did I say it wrong at the beginning? You didn't. I got no. it right. Thank you both very much. And Simon, thank you for being the first person to come back on Development Drums. Uh, I hope Drums. it won't be the last time. I enjoyed it very much. It's a pleasure to see you both. Absolutely, Owen. Well done.